So I, I don't know if you've ever played out this scenario in your mind. What would I do if I won the lottery? Or if I suddenly you know, received some enormous inheritance from a, a distant relative, perhaps? Don't act like you've never thought about this. How, how would I, what would I do? What would I do first? And how would I begin to spend this money? Well, there are experts who, you know, give their opinion on stuff like this. The first thing, this is, this is a modern thing, of course, but the first thing they do, they say, delete all your social media right away if you win the lottery. I'm sure you can understand why that might be a good idea. But they'll tell you, don't do anything crazy right away, okay? Don't go out and immediately quit your job as much as you may want to. Don't start making promises to these, you know, distant cousins of yours who suddenly show up at the door or call you on the phone, right? You know why they're calling. You haven't seen them since you were three years old at the family reunion. All of a sudden, they're, they're coming back around. Don't make any promises because it's going to take some time for you to grow accustomed to this new category, this new reality in which you are living. You're going to need time to figure out how do I wisely navigate my new future with this sudden income that I found myself possessing, right? So just chill for a minute. That's the advice that the experts give you in case you come into a great deal of money. Well, y'all, as we, as we get near the end now of the Gospel of John, we're now on the other side of the resurrection. We've, we've spent so much of John working up to the death and the burial of Jesus and now the resurrection, which we celebrated on Easter and again last week. Well, now we're in the new world. The risen Jesus has defeated death and the grave once and for all for those who trust in him. And so even as we're reading here now in John, the, the disciples, something better than the lottery has come their way. They are now disciples, not of a dead and forgotten Savior like they feared, but of a risen Savior. He is theirs and they are his. They are soon to become apostles, those who are sent out to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus, and they are going to bear first-hand eyewitness to the world turning upside down, as we see in the book of Acts, as they begin to share Christ with the world. But here in the end of John, we kind of get a sense of what I call the in-between time. Jesus has uh, risen from the grave. He then spends 40 days on earth with his disciples before he ascends to the Father, and during this 40-day period, Jesus reveals himself to many people in many different ways. But the most detailed appearance of the resurrected Christ takes place right here in John 21. And here's what's interesting about this, this account. The, the disciples have, in a, in a sense, they've won the lottery. They have seen the risen Lord. He really is alive, just as he promised he would be. But it's hard for them to grapple with this new category. Like, you know, they just... They, it, they have no way of, of knowing how to live now with a resurrection taking place before their eyes, with Jesus really alive again, and he's gloriously alive. They know him now in a way that they didn't before. You know, it helps us to remember as we're reading the scripture, these are real guys living in the real world trying to comprehend this unimaginable miracle that they've witnessed. Right. How do you live now? on the other side of this. Well, through it all, we see Jesus patiently, graciously walking them through it. He's there for them, even in all his now glorious perfection. So look with me at John 21, beginning in verse 1, and let's just see how this unfolds. 
After these things, John tells us, Jesus manifested himself again for the third time to the disciples at the sea. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of Jesus' disciples were together. That's seven in all. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. So they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now, if you were with us in chapter 20 the last two weeks, Jesus has appeared in his risen state. He's appeared now twice already to the disciples. Okay? They've seen him. They know he's alive. So we might ask the question, what are they doing going fishing? Like, shouldn't they be running out at this point to tell everybody what's happened, what they've seen? Why are they going back to what they used to do? Well, I don't think we should assume disobedience or anything on their part. I'll give you two quick things on this. For one, um, Jesus told the disciples to wait. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, and then you will be my witnesses to the world. That's what we call Pentecost. That hasn't happened yet. That doesn't happen until Acts chapter 2. But also, uh, the angels told the disciples to go to Galilee. And that's where the Sea of Tiberias is. Go to Galilee, and Jesus is going to meet you there. And so while they're in Galilee, apparently they decide to go on a little fishing trip. Peter, James, and John, three of these men, were professional fishermen. That was their trade. This is what they do. So I don't think there's necessarily anything strange or wrong with what they're doing, except for the fact that they fished all night and caught nothing. Have you noticed that these professional fishermen never catch any fish? I'm, you know, I don't know what we should read into that, but they, they, they weren't very good at, at, uh, at what they did for a living, apparently. Um, but then Jesus shows up. Things change. Look at verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find a catch. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Now, something similar to this has, has actually happened previously in the Gospels. Back in Luke chapter 5, uh, Jesus provides a miraculous catch of fish. That time, he was actually in the boat with Peter. Peter had fished all night and caught nothing, of course. But Jesus in the boat says, hey, let's, let's go back out once more for a catch. And Peter didn't really want to, but at Jesus' command, he said, yes, I will. They go back out there for a catch, and they catch so many fish that the boats begin to sink. And if you remember that scene, Peter gets down on his hands and knees and says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He knew there's something about Jesus I can't comprehend here. There's something divine here going on. Well, in this case, a similar thing happens, not exactly the same, but they perceive a stranger out on the seashore. They're about 100 yards away. It's early morning, perhaps still dark, or just now the sun is rising. They can't see who it is. But he calls out to them and says, hey, throw your nets out on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find some fish. Now, these are professional fishermen. 
Certainly, they have thrown their nets on every side of the boat at this point, right? And it did them no good. But they take the stranger's advice. They cast their nets one more time, and something miraculous happens. And John, who is one of the men in the boat, he's no fool. He, he's, he knows what's happening here. Something's up. That's not a stranger there on the seashore. Look at verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Now there are, best of my count now from the earlier part of this chapter, there's seven disciples here in this boat. They're about a hundred yards away from the land, but we can kind of picture that in our mind's eye. And when it becomes clear that this is Jesus calling out to them from the shore, they do the most natural thing. Having these, this great catch of fish in the net, they take the oars and they begin to make their way to the shoreline to meet him. But Peter can't wait. He jumps into the water and then swims his absolute hardest to get to Jesus as quickly as he can. Now, this would be a bad time for us to conclude, ah, Peter's just being impulsive. You know, this is very, fits his personality profile. You know, Peter was always saying and doing things without really thinking it through. He never had a plan. He didn't have a course of action or a sense of direction. He just did stuff, you know. Surely that's, you know, that's just, that's Peter. Um, but y'all, I, I hope we wouldn't make that mistake right here. As if Peter flings himself into the water just because he, he didn't really take time to think it through. Now, Simon Peter is no doubt still living in the wake of his most notorious and greatest sin, which was his denial of Jesus. Y'all, that had happened just perhaps two or three weeks prior. The very thing Jesus said Peter would do, he prophesied it, he told him it was going to happen. Of course, Peter flatly denied it. I'll never deny you. And of course, that's exactly what he did. That Peter uh, watched as Jesus was betrayed and arrested and then in those twilight hours on Good Friday, Peter was given three opportunities to confess his discipleship to Jesus. And all three times, he publicly denied ever knowing him. And when the rooster crowed early that morning, just as Jesus prophesied, Peter recognized his sin and went out and wept bitterly, completely destroyed over what he had done. And so, y'all, it's, it's a fair question. I mean, if we're, if we're familiar with that story, most of us are, how can Peter, or how could anybody, ever overcome such a cowardly betrayal and denial of the Lord? I mean, you and I, we've done some things, right? But I've never publicly denied knowing Jesus. I'd never do that. And we might kind of hold ourselves in a different, you know, in a different stratosphere. You know, Peter's down here. I'd never do that. But y'all, anybody who knows what it is to be a sinner has to ask this same question. How could I ever overcome that? How could the Lord ever bring me back in after that? Right? And in Peter's case, the answer is only the Lord. There's nothing Peter can do to compensate for what he's done. Only the Lord himself can forgive and restore this man. 
And y'all, that is what is taking place here in these resurrection narratives. From the time Jesus rises from the dead, he has continued to pursue the disciples to show up where they are. Twice in the last chapter, he shows up in the room with them. And in both cases prior, Jesus comes to the disciples, including Peter. He proclaims peace to them and he welcomes them in. He holds out his hands to them and brings them close. He grants them peace and grace. He reconciles them to himself. He does not say, how dare you? How dare you, Peter, above all? If any of the disciples should have stood up when the time was right, it would have been you and you didn't. But no, Peter, just like the rest, are welcomed back in. Jesus calls them his own brothers. And here again, in chapter 21, Jesus appears to them, revealing his grace in the provision of the fish. And see, here's the, the, the reality of the resurrection now, is that Jesus is not just alive again, but he's returning in absolute mercy and forgiveness and restoration. Peter is forgiven his terrible sin, and now he knows it. Jesus has restored him and is embracing him in a way that Peter knows he does not deserve and that he could never earn. Y'all, Jesus once said, He who is forgiven much, loves much. Which means, sinners who know just how great our sin is and just how deeply God has forgiven us, we will respond, we will abound with joy and, and gratitude and love for God. If I know how great His forgiveness is, then I'll respond with great love for Him. You know, we, we see that old hymn that we all know so well, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I know what I am. And that's why the grace is not just okay. The grace is amazing. And so, of course, Peter flings himself into the water as one who is forgiven and embraced and restored. So, y'all, now, as we read this account, here's the question, at least for me. The question is not, why would Peter do this? Why would Peter act like this? The question should be, why don't I? Why don't I? Why don't I fall all over myself? in love and gratitude for the risen Savior who has forgiven me and restored me. Has Jesus forgiven me any less than he forgave Simon Peter? Is my sin any less uh, grievous to God and destructive to myself? No. Why don't I respond like Peter does here? I think one of the great threats of, of just being a Christian is that we, we can very easily grow complacent over time. We get used to being a Christian. I get used to myself, and I start to see myself, I'm, you know, I'm not that bad, after all. Maybe at one time I was, but no, I, I kind of take for granted how bad my sin used to be and how bad it even is now. And therefore, if, I, if my sin is not all that bad, then my need for forgiveness is not all that great. And therefore, the most natural thing in the world, my love for Jesus starts to grow colder, where at best I'm just, I'm kind of lukewarm in my affection for the Lord because I just don't see my need for him like it used to be. 
And so we might look at Peter throwing himself into the water here in John 21, and if our first thought is, what a strange thing to do, then maybe I haven't really understood the measure of God's grace for me. See, the truth is about Peter, this is a man, he knew how great his need for Jesus was, and he also knew how great Jesus' mercy for him was. And that's something all of us need to take to heart, that we should desire to be like Peter in this case, that I, if I understand my great need and how my, how my great need has been met in its fullness by God's great mercy, then I'll never get over it. I'll never get over the preciousness and the, the, the heaviness of His love for me. It has washed all my sin away. It's come to me in full love and forgiveness and restoration, and I ought to love much in return. It's the only natural thing to do. It's to be like Peter, not to think him strange for what he does, but to say that's how we should all respond to the Lord's grace, fling ourselves in his direction because he's been that good to us. So Peter jumps in the water and he swims his hardest to Jesus now, he gets to the shore, and at some point, you know, in a moment or two later, the rest of the disciples show up. Of course, they've got the fish with them in the boat. Look what they find when they get there. Verse 8, verse 9. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. The risen Jesus is cooking breakfast for his disciples. And y'all, this strikes us, I hope, to see this. Even now, post-resurrection, he is humbly serving others. He's meeting their needs. You notice he says... Come, bring some of your catch also. Their catch? He's the one who did it. But he said, bring some of the fish you caught. We'll cook those too. Jesus provides all of it. He's providing the meal now in front of them. He's going to enjoy fellowship with them. Look at verse 12. Now what happens? Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You know, in one sense, this is, it kind of reads like a very normal event, right? Jesus has breakfast with his disciples on the lakeshore. I mean, there's no telling how many times they had done this together in the course of a three-year ministry. But it's not normal. It's not normal at all. And, and John kind of clues us into this. Jesus is risen and he's glorified. Something's different about him. And John doesn't really tell us what it is exactly. But the disciples, they keep looking at him. They don't dare to ask, who are you? Or maybe, is it really you? They know it's Jesus, but something's new. This is not normal. He really is alive. And in some sense, he's glorious to their eyes, right? And yet here he is. He's not floating above them. 
He's there with them, eating with them. And so, y'all, as, as we consider what's happening in John 21, you know, as I, as I walked through this scripture this week, as, as I thought about it and thought about how, you know, I, my own view of it, uh, there's a part of this, as simple as this story reads, there's a part of it that really challenges me and almost kind of bothers me. And this is a problem for me. It's, it's my fault. It has nothing to do with the Lord, certainly, or the Bible. It's just me. When I think about Jesus, now risen and glorified, he has conquered death forever. He's, he's preparing to ascend to the right hand of the Father and sit on his throne for all eternity. Okay? When I think about Jesus that way, there's a sense of distance that I kind of consider. Like, he can't, if, if he's really that great, and he's alive again, and he's glorious, um, he's conquered, you know, the world. He's done everything he came to do. He can't really get that close, or he shouldn't, at least. And, and maybe this is, if, if it speaks to you in any way, like, I struggle to accept that Jesus, in all his power and glory, would want to hang out with me, would want to be close to me. One of the images, I, I, and I've preached it before because I, I really think it's very helpful, that great scene in The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy and her friends, they get to the Emerald City, they finally are granted an audience with the wizard. They get to go into his theater. And what they're expecting is this benevolent person to help them. And what do they find instead? They find smoke and fire and a booming voice hurling insults at them and issuing them these, all these arbitrary commands, sending them out of his presence. It's not what they expected. And yet, for, for a lot of us, perhaps, when we think about God, that's the, if that's not the impression we get, at least that's how God ought to be. Big and great and marvelous and perhaps angry. And I better not get too close. I don't belong in his presence. Um, that I shouldn't really approach God. I know I don't deserve to. I shouldn't bother him. I don't want to impose I don't want to bring my little problems to God because he's got bigger things to do. Maybe kind of like the sun. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm glad for the sun, but I don't want, to, I don't want us getting any closer to it. Like, we're, we're fine, okay? It's 86 yesterday. I'm good. Any closer, that would be a problem. I certainly am not going to look into it, burn my eyes out, right? I'm grateful for the sun, but let's keep an appropriate distance here, okay? And maybe that's the way, you know, God is with us, or that's the way maybe things ought to be. And then we come to a story like this, and, and really that perception, at least for me, it starts to fall apart. It unravels. The risen Jesus, in all his power and his purity and perfection and glory, what does he do? He seeks the disciples out. He doesn't hide himself and make them come to find him. He comes to them. He blesses them. He serves them. He welcomes them in. He invites them to enjoy a meal that he's prepared for them to eat. And all the boundaries or hurdles that we might imagine that would exist between me and Jesus, we don't see them in, in this story. There are no boundaries. There are no hurdles, no barriers. And if we wonder why not, it's because Jesus has taken them all away. Every hurdle that might stand between you and God, Jesus has removed. Jesus has bridged the gap. See, that's the good news of the gospel that we get to see now on display, lived out in real life. The truth is, for both the disciples and for us, the truth is, if we are sinners, then we do experience separation from God as a result of sin. 
The Scripture tells us this in all different kinds of ways. The, the Bible says that apart from Jesus, we are, we are lost, we are alienated from God, we are walking in darkness, we are without hope in the world. That's the truth, and it's a hard truth. But God, the Scripture says, but God, because He is rich in mercy, and the love with which He has loved us, when His kindness appeared in the person of His Son, Jesus, God did not desire for us to remain far away, walking in darkness, but for us to have the light of life. And that's, y'all, that's the whole reason for which Jesus came. He came to bridge the gap, to remove all the barriers that we in our sin created. And so if we're seeing what, what happens here in John 21, Jesus pursuing, welcoming, serving, restoring, y'all, this is a picture of what Jesus does for everybody who turns to Him in faith. Everybody. We receive the very same grace, the pursuing, welcoming, serving, restoring, loving mercy of God. He delights to come close, not to keep us at arm's length. Now, two scriptures I want to show us that I think really uh, are, are a blessing to us when we consider all of this. One from Peter, one from Paul. In 1 Peter 3, he says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Paul says it in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What are those scriptures telling us? They're telling us concretely what we're, what we're seeing in, in the image of breakfast on the beach. That Jesus, through His death on our behalf, has brought us to God. He's brought us in. If Jesus just pitied you, if He looked down from heaven and felt sorry for us, well, He might act on our behalf. He might forgive us our sins somehow, but only at arm's length, only from a distance. God feels sorry for us, but he's not going to get his hands dirty down here. He's going to stay where he is. And he feels bad. He'll help us out. But that's the best we can hope for. But see, that's not the message of the Scripture. Not that God feels sorry for you, but that God loves you. And the proof of his love is shown in, in a million different ways, but one of them is right here in what we just read, that Jesus Christ died to bring you to God. Whose idea was that? It wasn't yours and mine. It was His. Does He want you? Does He want you with Him, close, present? It was His idea to bring you in. You and I who are far off, He is brought near by the blood of Christ. He doesn't pity you. He loves you. And therefore, He came for you. And by faith, he makes you part of His own family. He makes Himself approachable, touchable. We can know Him now face to face. That's the beautiful image here of Jesus making breakfast for His own disciples, serving them even in His resurrected state when it would make perfect sense for them to wait on Him. We see the exact opposite. Jesus loving, blessing, giving of Himself because this is who Jesus is always giving for us and to us.
Y'all, as we close in this, I, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to see this and think, man, what a, wouldn't that be great to have breakfast on the beach with Jesus? Wouldn't that be great to know him in that way? Uh, the scripture gives us a promise from Jesus himself, and I want to end on this. Jesus speaks of his second coming, the, the time in which he will come again to usher in his kingdom forever. That day has yet to come for us, but it's on the horizon. We don't know the day, only God knows, but it is fixed and it is certain. Jesus describes that day, there's a place in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus commends the people who will be faithfully serving him on that day. Whenever Jesus returns, those who know him and are loving him and and obeying him and, and, and faithful on that day when he returns, Jesus makes a promise to us in that case. The promise in Luke 12, 37. He, now this is Jesus speaking of himself. Jesus will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Is that what you'd expect? On the great day of his return, when he comes on the clouds in his glory, No, when Jesus returns, we're going to serve him, right? He's going to recline at the table, and we're going to gladly attend to his needs. That's what we'd expect. And of course, y'all, of course we gladly serve Jesus, yes. But that's not the image he gives us there. That in his glorious return, when he comes in his kingdom, when Jesus is at his most powerful, bright and shining as the sun... He says, even then, you recline at the table. I'll serve you. Because that's who he is. He is the God who has no reason to be humble, and yet he humbles himself for our sake, serving us. And y'all, this is a Jesus more wonderful than we know. This is a hard image for me to bear because I just, I can't, I don't know why he would want to be that close to me, and yet that's who he is, serving, giving, restoring all the way to the end. He's more gracious than we dare believe, but it's who he is, and y'all, all of his pursuing love, all of his welcoming presence, all of his restoring mercy, all of his eternal grace, it's all ours to receive by faith. Nothing of our own earning or deserving. We simply receive it for the gift he delights to give. Is it any wonder at all why Simon Peter flung himself into the sea? Is it any wonder why I don't have the same heart for my Savior who has loved me and given himself for me too? May we respond with absolute love and gratitude and joy. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking this morning for um, conviction. Uh, certainly for me, I pray for all of us that, Lord, if we, if we have tasted of your mercy and grace and kindness and love, 
if we have received the forgiveness of sins, if we have been brought near by the blood of Christ, then help us this morning, Lord, that we would not view Simon Peter as strange or as awkward or weird or overly dramatic, but that we would see him as, as he's just doing what is the most natural and right and good thing. Getting to Jesus as fast as he can. The one who has loved him and restored him, forgiven him. Lord, if you would, if you would give us a sense in our own hearts of this today, we would be, we'd be the better for it. Seeing, Lord, our great need met by your great mercy. And Lord, where our sin has abounded and increased and overflowed, your grace has abounded all the more to cover us and will forever cover us. And so Lord, would we this morning, I pray, would you, would you help us to see how truly good you have been to us and are to us and will be to us. That our Savior Jesus has never stopped serving us. He is serving us even now. And he will serve us even in the age to come because, Father, that's your heart. That's who you are. And Lord, I, I pray for us that we would just we'd fall all over ourselves at the grace and the mercy we've been given. That our faith, Lord, in you would, would um, shine brightly, uh, Lord, because we know that it is not in our goodness, it is not our effort, it is not our doing, Lord, that brings us near to you. It's your gift of your Son given to those who could not deserve you. And so, Lord, let it be for us that, that we see ourselves in that, in that scripture we read a moment ago. In Christ Jesus, we who once were far off have now been brought near by his blood. Lord, thank you that you've loved us and brought us to yourself. Lord, let it be the greatest gift um, and the greatest joy. We who have been forgiven much, Lord, let us love you much in return. Hmm. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.